Good morning. I want to welcome you to Wellspring. If you're visiting here for the first time, I'm Nate. And uh, we are in the book of Joshua. We're preaching through a series. We find ourselves in chapter 9 this morning. If you want to turn there, we're going to be there and lots of other interesting places today. I just want to highlight a couple of announcements. If you got our nice fancy bulletin here. we have a Good Fridays coming up, I think, in about three weeks. Can you believe it? Maybe two? I don't know. Three weeks. Um, that's going to be at Cornerstone uh, Community Church. They changed the name, so I had to, had to think for it. Cornerstone Community Church in Hartville. Uh, for those of you who don't know, that's Ron Embleton's church. Ron Embleton actually... Uh, founded this church, uh, Wellspring, and so we're going to be combined with them on Good Friday. I think it'll be a good time for us to uh, see him there, and it's actually, it's been a year uh, since Ron was here, Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, it is Wellspring's sixth anniversary, sixth birthday today, so I don't know if at the end of the service, if we want to sing happy birthday, I don't know what we want to do, but there's cake over there, so we can have some sugar before our lunch, so... And we can't save it, so you have to eat it all up. So I'm going to there's some kids in here, so if you sit really good, you can have a big piece of cake. Where's your mom? <laughs> or two pieces of cake. So um, keep that in mind. Look through the bulletin here. There's lots of things happening. Um, it's worthwhile uh, reading there. If you have any questions, uh, contact information for the individual events are in here. And... Uh, Please talk with them. There's lots of opportunities to get involved, and there's lots of opportunities to do things here um, at Wellspring. So um, as we get into chapter 9 of Joshua today, um, just thinking through it this week, you know, it's, it's uh, for me, I, it might be easier for Phil. I don't know. He probably will tell you different. Um Preaching and doing spiritual leadership, I don't feel like is is easy for me. I often feel like I have a target on my back, and it's true. Um, Satan is looking to get us. And I'm not saying you are trying to shoot me. I hope not. <laughs> but Satan, our enemy, is has a constant target on our back. And when we're doing things for the Lord, he's coming after us. And he wants to deceive us. He wants to get us distracted, and it's so easy to get distracted. It may be distracted on very valid things, distracted on maybe there's something broken at home, maybe there's something at work that's got me distracted. It's it's easy for me to just get distracted because it's a nice day outside, and I'd rather not be inside working. It's It happens to us all. And as the Israelites in chapter 9, they're going into the land, they're making a lot of ruckus. I mean... They took out Jericho. That's a stronghold in the land. And they took out Ai. That was last week. They, they've made some noise. And so I don't feel as though they were as self-aware as they should have been at this point that, hey, there's a target on our back, and we need to be really, really careful about what happens. We need to be really, really careful about who we talk to, and what we do right now because we're God's people. 
we're doing God's work, and the enemy is going to come after us. So let's open in prayer as we think about that and ask God that he would help us not to be distracted this morning from this text, that he would help us. Father, I just pray that you would help us this morning. There's so many distractions. In my own life, there's just there's many things that have pulled my mind in all sorts of directions this morning. I pray that you would help us to focus on your word and your message this morning so that we can understand what you would have us to know here today and that we can apply this to our lives. We just thank you for Wellspring and six years here, Father. A blessing it is. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read a little bit. Joshua chapter 9. If you remember, the end of chapter 8, they defeated Ai, and then they spent some time and they read the law of Moses. That's where we were ended up last week. Keep that in mind. As soon as the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. Remember, they're hearing of the Israelites conquering the land. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of the Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? And they said, A very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the king of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, and to who lived in Ashtoreth. So our elders and all of our inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come, now make a covenant with us. Here is our bread, and it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey. And on the day we set to come to you, but now, behold, it is dry and comely. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst, and these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Let's stop there for a minute. I call this a devious plan from hell. Because, and this is how I feel like it's happened way too often to me. If it happened once, it's happened way too often to me. Somebody comes along and they want to be my friend. 
man, they say the right things, and they talk the, the right way, and they compliment me. And generally, I feel like if somebody comes along and the first thing they do is they're just telling me all the good things about me, I, I want to maybe be on guard a little bit. Maybe when we're tearing through the countryside here, defeating cities, we want to be careful about those who show up and start complimenting us for that. They weren't there to necessarily make friends in the land. And we see here that the Gibeonites, they start out with a lie, which is a terrible way to start any type of relationship. If, you, if I walk up to you and say, I'm Joe, and you know that's not my name, but you don't know that, I'm starting the relationship out with a lie. How much do I trust this relationship? And we know who this enemy is because he's the age-old enemy, Satan, that's working through the Gibeonites here. I think verse 3 really reminds me of Genesis chapter 3. Remember from the first time we meet Satan in the garden. Says the, he uses the serpent. And he says the serpent was more crafty, which means the same thing as cunning if you look it up in the dictionary. I'm sure there's some differences on how they translated that, but crafty and cunning are, are two ways that you would use to deceive somebody. So the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any other the beast of the field that the Lord had made. And then we know in Genesis chapter 3, he starts questioning God, trying to deceive the woman in the garden, and he succeeds. So again, same strategy. Let's do it again to this great nation of Israel that God's built. Let's deceive through the Gibeonites. They made it look like they were from really far away, even though they hadn't traveled very far at all. They just got some old clothes, and they ran over to Goodwill, got some old clothes, and put those on. And these were likely the, the leaders, some, some high officials in the Gibeonites. You're not going to just send anybody out to try to deceive this nation. You're going to send out the leaders. And so, you know, these are the types of guys that would have had the fancy stuff. They, they weren't going to J.C. Penney's and, and buying clothes. I'm not sure where fancy clothes come from. I don't know, some designer where Armani suits or something. There, To give you an idea, these, these, were, these were what they would normally wear, were nice clothes. They would have had the good stuff that they normally wore. So they had to really put on this act, and they had to get old wineskins. And if you don't know about uh, how wineskins work, but they would actually have... Uh, these goat skins, and they would put the wine in it, and that's how they would carry it. But it would only last so long. You, it would wear out, and so they would break, and you couldn't carry any more wine in it. And so we're like, hey, we've got, we've got old wine skins. Well, they had to dig through the trash to bring those along with them, and they had to go get the moldy bread that was left over. And they really put some planning in place to come and deceive the Israelites. And they make it sound really good. Man, and they knew a lot of information about the Israelites, too. Like, they did their research on them. Like, they knew everybody that they had defeated. They knew where they were from. They knew they came from Israel. Like, they knew some, some history about the Israelites and where they came from. And so, 
Satan makes this sound really, really good. So if we, we pick back up in verse 14, it says the men, these are the men of Israel, they took some of their provisions and they did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and they lived among them. Wow. So, the key phrase here, if you forget anything else here, it says, they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They made a really quick decision. I mean, it only took them three days to find out that these guys were their neighbors. So that means it was probably less than a three-day journey from where they were at. They, went, they found these guys. Hey, they're right over here. They weren't that far away from them. I won't give you a geography uh, lesson today. I, but they, they were close by. And... They find out very quickly that these guys were their neighbors. And their fault in this, I believe, is if you remember again, I said they read the book of the law in chapter 8, the end of chapter 8. So just a few days before, they read every word that Moses had written. It says, verse 35 of chapter 8, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Everybody had heard Moses' command. They had read the entire book of the law. They knew what it said. And I think they heard what they wanted to hear here. And here's why. If we look at Deuteronomy 7, one of Moses' commands, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, this is the land of Canaan, that you are entering, take possession of it, and clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, it goes on, the Hivites, just a footnote here, the Gibeonites are a part of the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. That's who they were supposed to clear out. But I think they read this part. They read what they wanted to read. Deuteronomy 20 talks about laws of war. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you should not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. I don't want to read the whole passage here. I apologize. 
skip down to 10. It says, when you draw near to a city, fight against it. Offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. I think this is what they wanted to see. They wanted to see a city that was a people that was outside of the land. As Deuteronomy 20 says, they didn't want it, they didn't want it to be Deuteronomy 7. They didn't want to believe that these were people from within the land. And so they didn't seek counsel of the Lord. They didn't follow the protocol that God had put in place for us. How often do we make decisions in our own life that we don't inquire of the Lord? How often do we make decisions that we wanted it to be this way when if we would have inquired of the Lord, we would have known the truth. They should have been on guard that the enemy was coming after them to deceive them, to make them break God's commands, to not follow God's word here. But the story doesn't end here. So now we find out that these guys have deceived them. And so now they go and they look. And they said, the, uh, starting in verse 17, it says, And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Other cities were Gibeon and Cherephah and Beroth and Kareth, Jurium. And the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and on the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live, so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. So they knew, now, they're kind of in a predicament, and I'll, and I'll show you why they're in a predicament here, because they knew that two wrongs aren't going to make a right. According to God's law, once they had made an oath, they weren't going to be able to break the oath now. Now they were in trouble. They could have gone and wiped out the city, but now that would break the law of oaths. Numbers chapter 30 tells us that, starting in verse 1, if a, or verse 2, I apologize. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an, swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So now they're stuck. They've made this oath. They didn't inquire of the Lord, and they have to keep it. You know, we don't keep oaths as seriously, I think, in this day and age as uh, they did then. You can even see it in the business world. Everything's contract-free now. We don't want to be committed to anything. We don't want, you know, we don't want to get married because we don't want to be committed to anything. We make excuses for ourselves. Um, we we don't want anything to hold us to anything. We don't we don't want to be held by oaths. And while it's important to be careful who we make an oath to. It's also important that 
we keep the promises that we make. And oftentimes these promises, we don't want to make any promises in the American culture because we know we're going to break them in the first place. So I guess maybe it's better not to make the promise if you're not going to keep it. But we have a culture that does not want to keep its own word. We don't want to keep our word. And we as God's people need to set an example of people who keep God's word. People who, when we make a promise, it's as good as God making that promise to somebody as well. God said that I am going to do this, and he does it. And in the likewise, Jesus commanded us that we're supposed to keep our word in the same manner. Israel tried to break this oath later on in history. Remember this guy, his name was King Saul. You ever heard of him? And he, some 300 years later, decides he's going to wipe out the Gideonites. And the, Gid the Gibeonites um, ended up living uh, around where the Benjamites would have lived. Uh, the Benjamites were a tribe of Israel, and that's the tribe that Saul was from. So he would have had to deal with these people every day. And it seemed like there was some, might have been some tension there because he tried to wipe them out when he was king. He tried to... Remove these people. And it wasn't immediately apparent that there was any type of consequences for this. But several years later, King David is king. Saul has passed away. Second Samuel chapter 21. There's a famine in the land. It says there was a famine in the days of David for three years and after year. And, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. They broke the oath. The Numbers chapter 30 tells them that they had to keep their oath. And God's holding them accountable for their oath here to the Gibeonites that they made. It was wrong that they made the oath. They didn't do what God told them, but he was still going to hold them accountable for this. And David makes it right here. The king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but the remnants of the Amorites. And although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, It was not a matter of silver or gold between us, and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say I shall do for you? And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, that we may hang them before the Lord, at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So for the atonement for trying to wipe out the Gibeonites, seven of Saul's house were put to death. It's not a pleasant story, but it's the seriousness of what God requires for the consequences of not keeping promises. And we're not in any way released from consequences of not keeping our promises 
Jesus kept it really simple for us. Matthew chapter 5, starting in um, verse 36. He says, Don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And basically he's saying, if you say it, you're going to do it. The first John passage that they read earlier also talks about the truth of the Lord that is in us, that if we are the Lord's children, that if we are God's people, that we will keep our word because God's truth is in us. God's truth lives in us, and because God's truth is in us, we will keep our word regardless of the consequences. makes us think a little bit more seriously about what we're promising for. We're not willy-nilly going out there and just making promises to people. Sometimes it might be worthwhile to take a minute, take a day or two, seek some counsel. I wanted to uh, give you some simple things to maybe think through when you go to make a decision. We'll get to the end of the chapter, but maybe it's worthwhile stopping here and just looking at that. I, I wrote down, and this is for me, this is my personal experience, fast decisions usually for me lead to wrong choices. And so whenever I try to make a move, whether it's personally, it's in business, I want to start first with prayer. I'm going to pray about it for a little while. And, and that tends to annoy people. Uh, around me, especially business people. you got to make this decision now. Salesmen are always trying to get me to buy things. This is the last chance. It's the end of the quarter. We're going to get you this deal. I haven't decided. I I'm, don't know if it's the right decision, and I want to pray about that. Some of these things are very expensive decisions. Long term, they could they could put me out of business. Long term, they could hurt your family, whatever decision it is. Trying to buy a house or choose who you're going to marry or... Maybe it's uh, estate planning, whatever it may be, all these things that we have to deal with. We need to pray through this and make sure that this is how God will want us to do it. And then we need to consult Scripture. Not every single um, thing is going to be clearly defined in Scripture, but I think there's principles in Scripture. If you're making a financial decision, Scripture talks a lot about money, doesn't it? A lot of these decisions that we're going to make are probably have some type of financial consequence involved in it. And we can consult Scripture and figure out what does Scripture say about these principles and how should we make this decision. And then we need to consult some other leaders in our lives that are using these same references. You know, maybe we should we should go to Phil and say, Phil, should I buy this house? And you need to Understand that you're talking to somebody who is using prayer and consulting Scripture constantly. Make sure that you're not just getting advice from somebody who's just going to give you the answer that you want. Not like the Israelites did that. They got the answer that they wanted. They made a fast decision. We've got to get this done now. Because remember, they made a bad decision because they did not inquire of the Lord. 
When we make decisions, we need to be inquiring of the Lord. So the Gibeonites, I don't feel like they don't get off scot-free here. They did okay, considering what the results would have been the other way. They deceived the Israelites, but God's grace ends up preserving them. They weren't going to live in luxury, though. They were going to be servants to the Israelites. It wasn't the life that probably they would have had, but by association, God was there now in their life. Whether they liked it or not, His grace was upon them. They had deceived their way into it. The Israelites were supposed to kill them, but here they were dealing with God's people. They were dealing with God. And when a promise was made, God was going to keep that promise. So here we see that whether we... I don't like that the Gibeonites found grace through deception, and but this is this is what it says. They found there's they found some grace through deception there. I don't know if this means that I don't. They didn't come to salvation because of this, but there was grace there, and I think that probably through that some would have come to know God through this. And did Satan win here? I don't think he won. Because I think God made it work together that he did have a plan. It didn't surprise God that the Israelites were going to make mistakes. Satan ultimately is not going to win because God's grace won here. That he had grace for the Israelites because they they made a bad decision. And he had grace for the Gibeonites. And we can remember that Hebrews passage says all things work together for good. I think good things came from this an example of the expectation that God has for us when we keep promises, that there continued to be grace that God could show, even on the people of Israel 300 years later when Saul tries to destroy the Gibeonites, that there was grace there. He could have wiped out the whole people of Israel if he wanted to by not keeping their promises to the Gibeonites, but there was just a famine in the land. God had grace even here through the sin that the Gibeonites did and the sin that the Israelites had. So I see a lot of warnings that we probably should pay attention to here in chapter 9. Number one, I think these are worthwhile writing down. If you keep notes, these are the things that are worthwhile writing down. There's a warning here about not seeking God's counsel, number one. is Are you seeking God's counsel for your decisions would be my question. A, a second warning is here, the warning about not reading God's word. Maybe not paying attention to God's word too, because they read God's word, right? Chapter 8. But I know sometimes, all right, we gotta, I'm going to read this chapter, and I don't even see it, you know? We're just reading to read. I'd rather read a small section 
and get something life-changing out of it than read the whole Bible cover to cover and not have my life changed by it. The whole word of God is life-changing, and if we're not looking, if we're not intentionally saying, okay, what can I learn from this? What are you trying to teach me through this passage, God? If you're not paying attention to what it says, I think that the enemy can use that as a way to just distract us, to, to check that box in our life. There's also a warning here about making promises. Be warned that God's going to hold you to that promise that you made. And who should you be making promises with? It's one thing to make a promise that, yeah, I'll go to lunch with you. And there's the consequences of that is you'll probably get a good lunch, depending on where you go. But if you make a promise that you're going to have a 30-year mortgage, we want to keep that promise. There's a warning here. This is the fourth warning I see about not keeping promises. You have to, if you don't keep your promises, there will be consequences for it. Some of that's built in, even into our law today, from government or contracts that we make. I think God's going to hold us accountable to that. Sometimes maybe he'll let the contract that you signed hold you accountable to it. But sometimes we make other promises that maybe we don't have a contract to. That, Or maybe the culture we're in allows us to break it. That doesn't make it right for us to break that promise. So what decisions do we have to make? We have a lot of decisions that we have to make. The types of relationships that we have, <clears throat> it could be marriage. When the young kids in here are not married, that's a big decision to make. You're making a lifelong commitment there. Maybe you're making a decision about how you'll raise your children or how many children you may have. The types of friends you'll have in your life. The types of actions you're going to do. These are all promises that we make. And when should we seek God's counsel? I definitely think for these types of decisions we need to seek God's counsel about the type of people we marry or our children, how we raise our children. There's a, there's a promise there that if you have a child that you're supposed to be there to raise your child, you're supposed to be there for them. Not saying that we can be perfect, but I'm saying that we have a a covenant with those children that we're we're gonna be there for them. I had a friend a couple of years ago, he had come to the Lord recently, and he was really thinking through godly counsel on everything that he did. And man, he he was he was just got himself all tied in knots on this part of it. And I think it was good because he had made a lot of bad decisions and was still suffering from the consequences of it. He got, I was driving down the road and I wanted something to eat and I didn't know if I should go to McDonald's or Burger King. And his name was Josh. And I said, Josh, did you have the money to go to Burger King or McDonald's? Well, yeah. I'm like, I think God just wanted you to get something to eat if you were hungry, if he had supplied the income to do that for you. And... And maybe we don't have to go 
as extreme with him. I appreciate that he was thinking through that because he was the kind of guy that would, you know, party it up and make terrible decisions for his life. And he was really trying to uh, think through everything that he did. Sometimes the decision's right there. It's the right decision to make. And we don't want to make it like the Israelites did. I think if they would have, maybe they should have waited. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say if, you know, hindsight's 2020. But if I could go back in time, I'd say, Joshua, let's wait four days. Just four days before you make this covenant. Because you know they found it in three days. But if they would have waited a little bit of time, seek God's counsel, do some research on these guys before we make this really quick. This was not just a lifelong decision. This was generational, <coughs> excuse me, generational decision that the Israelites were making. That these people would be their servants forever. That's a pretty big decision that you're going to let somebody be a part of you forever. Even if they did get some free labor out of it. We have something the Israelites did not have, though. This is the really neat part about a relationship with Christ and, you know, being post um, Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, is he gave us the Holy Spirit. And that's the greatest thing of all, because that's his grace with us every single day. <coughs> Those who are in Christ have God's Spirit. And that gives us God's grace every single day. It gives us a better way to make decisions because we should have, we should be wanting God's mind in our mind. And as we read Scripture and it comes alive to us, it should affect our thinking and how we make these decisions. We have God's completed word as well. You know, they didn't even have the book of Joshua. They couldn't read about themselves and see all the mistakes they would make, and then let's not make those mistakes. They had a very limited word of God. It was enough for them to make the right decisions, but we have so much more. We should be so much better at making decisions. I think they would look at us and say, why are you making bad decisions? You've got all this, you've got all these great tools. You know, you've got these great people in your church. You've got good godly counselors. You've got uh, the word of God. You've got the Holy Spirit to talk to you. You know, we they didn't have any of that stuff. Kind of a scary idea to me. I'm I'm really blessed to have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And how often do I make a decision without consulting the Word of God or praying about it first? So I'll leave us this morning again. Think about those warnings. Think about the warnings that we have to be so careful about who we make promises with and also think through the, the protocols, too. But if you're going to make a decision, we need to start with inquiring of. We have a direct conversation with the Lord anytime we want. We say, what decision would you have me to make here? And then, and then we have Scripture. 
again, to highlight, I, I don't think I can say it enough. There's so much here. And, and so much that I, if you read it, and I, I've read, you know, the Bible cover to cover. I could, I could walk around. I've read the Bible cover to cover. Um, but there's, there's so much I've missed in there. We started men's group in, in Job uh, on Tuesday nights. And I've read Job, but there's so many new things in there that I'm realizing again. I've, I've read the book of Joshua, and I realized some new things in here about my decision-making and, and my protocols that I have in my life that I'm not always using what God's given me to make these right decisions. So are you inquiring of the Lord for everything that you do? Are you inquiring of the Lord for these decisions that you make in your life? So my challenge for you this week would be to just reflect on this. There's so much more that we could cover in Joshua chapter 9. It's a, it's a great chapter. I would look at that. We can, we can talk more about the seat and how the enemy comes to get us. Remember, you have a target on your back as God's child. So when you go to make a decision, it seems really good. It seems like a really good idea. And you have to make a decision eventually, don't you? Sometimes we just have to we have to make a choice. And we need to pray, seek good counsel, read the Word of God, and just and have faith that God's given us the tools and the resources that when we make a decision that He'll be with us. If it's not contrary to His Word, and if it's not um, something that would lead us into sin, we definitely don't want to make decisions that would lead us into sin. So my challenge would be, reflect on your life. Are the decisions that you've made that have given you negative consequences or led you into sin? And then, if we have, what are we going to do? What are we going to use Scripture and the, whole, the power of the Holy Spirit and prayer and those around us to lead us into better decisions? and better than our life. Because we're not going to be perfect about it. This isn't a, a message that, oh, you can be perfect now, but a message that now that you know, you can be better and be more like Christ. And so that we know when we say, yes, I'll do that, or no, I won't. That is what we're going to do. And remember, we are being watched. We're being watched by our children. We're being watched by our community being watched by those around us. There's people out there that are watching Wellspring for six years. They've been watching us, watching what type of decisions we make and how are we going to be. Are we going to be like every other church out there? Are those people from Wellspring going to be like everybody else? Are they going to be like those people who break their promises and all the broken relationships we have in our lives? We want to show that we are God's people and we keep his word. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word and your Holy Spirit. I thank you for your grace that you've given us. It's, it's tough to not have these tools. It's tough to not use these tools that you've given us, Father. It's, it's tough to not have a relationship with you. 
And so help us remember those of us who have a relationship with God to to just rest in you, to say, Father, I don't know what the right decision is. Please help me. Let us not be so proud that we'll make these decisions ourselves, that we will not inquire of you. Give us grace, Father, for we fail, we sin. I think about those. Maybe there's somebody here today that does not have your Holy Spirit. The Word of God doesn't make sense to them. Today is the day that they could know your grace, could know the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Maybe their life's a mess. Just don't know how to make the right decisions. I pray that you would you would help them at this time, Father. Help them come to know you and your Holy Spirit and have a relationship. Help us this could convict us to go into a a deeper understanding of you, Father, and a passion and a drive to get into your your scripture every single day as you walk with us. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.